0: Okay, I don't know if this is exciting to you or not, but we're coming to the end of the David series. Um, all good things must come to an end. And you can start uh, turning your Bibles to Second Samuel 9. I don't know if you know this, but uh, no character in the Bible has more space devoted to them with maybe the one exception of Jesus, than David. And I I think we know that David is an important character, but but why so much space? Why why is David uh, such an important part of the biblical story? Is it because David is this amazing person who lives this amazing life, and we're supposed to emulate him? Well, my answer to that is yes and no. I mean, um, it has to be yes and no. Uh, Personally, David, to me, is a hero. He is a man. He is a man's man. He is a man who has a heart and a passion for God, and he's unapologetic in that. I want that. I want to be like that. But especially the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these other aspects of David. His sin, his failures, his adultery, his cover-up, his murder, all of this gross stuff in his life. Here's the deal. The Bible is not a book of virtue. That's not its intent. The Bible is first a story. It's relentlessly a story. It's God's story. And through this story, God is telling us some important things. He's telling us what's wrong with the world. He's telling us what's wrong with us. And he's telling us the good news of how he's going to repair and fix everything that's gone bad. That's the Bible. And Israel is a big part of God's plan to fix the world. And and, And Israel's king is an even more important part. Because really what Israel is, Israel is God's special people. Now they're under God's king. And together Israel with its king is to be this new Adam placed in this new Adam, or Israel, Eden. And their mission as a redeemed people is to partner with God to redeem the world. And the king in all this has been raised up To shepherd them in this, and the sheep are called to follow their king, their shepherd, who is wholeheartedly to follow after God. And what Will showed us last week is how the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel because Israel forsook their God. And Israel forsook their God because their king forsook God. And as a king goes, so goes a people. And I want us to just see, in terms of the biblical story itself, how how devastating this is to the story. Because David now is no different than the first king, Adam. He can't say no to the forbidden fruit. His failure is great, and the effects of his sin are cataclysmic. And while David and Israel are are called to be a part of God's solution for the world, they still can't be anything but part of the problem. David needs just as much redeeming as he is called to redeem with God. But the reason why I'm ending with today's text is because I want us to see that David is more than just a failure. Someone who points us back to Adam and Adam's failure. But David is also a king who points us to the true king, to Christ. And this story that we're going to look at today, I think, is the high watermark point in David's life. And he points us to Jesus. 2 Samuel 9 If you can stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied, the king asked, is there still anyone alive in the house of Saul to whom I can show the Lord's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, yes, there is still one, one from the house of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's in the house of Medir, son of Amiel, living in Lodabar. The king had him brought before. The king had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makar, son of Amiel. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, "Mephibosheth, at your service." He replied, "Don't be afraid." David said to him. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at, at my table. Mephib- Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice? A dead dog like me. And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Like one of the king's sons. This is God's word. You can be seated. I'm just going to say this right now. <laughs> we studied this uh, this week in that room right up there Tuesday morning with all the guys that I do this with, and everybody but me butchered Mephibosheth's name. <laughs> so I know what's going to happen this morning, all right? So I'll probably butcher his name, but, but who cares? Um, it's kind of funny, he, actually. So here's the context. David, of course, we know, is, is now the king. He's at rest with all of his enemies. In fact, he's just experienced this, this undeserved kindness from God, where, where God promises to David a dynasty, a son, a king, a Messiah, whose kingdom will be forever. And now it's in this context in which the Lord has shown kindness to David. David says, who can I show kindness to? Now this, this word in, in verse 1, where David says, is there anyone in Saul's house who I can show kindness to? Anyone have a guess at what word that this is in Hebrew? We've been learning this word. Chesed. I have a ring on my finger that has the Hebrew word has said on it. Because it's such a beautiful word. It's, it's a word that we really can't translate into English with, with one English word. Which is why sometimes our text will translate it, it as kindness. Sometimes we'll translate it as love. It, it, it's, it's the Hebrew word for grace, but it encapsulates also. Um, Th- this, this thing that is forever. In fact, if I could come up with, with, with a definition, my, my definition for chesed would be, it's this unending, undeserved, unmerited, unconditional, unfailing love. And that is the thing our hearts all long for. I think one of the best examples of of this love is actually in the story of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is the daughter-in-law to Naomi, and they both lose their husbands. Ruth is a Moabite woman, and Naomi is from the tribe of Judah, and she's going to go back to Israel, and uh, Ruth just clings to her. And she clings to her. And, and, and Naomi says, no, you, you need to go back to your people. I need to go back to my people. And, and then Ruth says this to Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And when you die, I will die. And I will be buried with you. May the Lord deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if even death separates me from you. That's a said. It's this, I will not let you go kind of love. I don't care if you've hurt me, I don't care. Um, what, whatever situation comes about, I am bound to you. In fact, last week, Will referenced uh, Moses, when, when Moses asks, asks God, it's like God has revealed all this stuff to him, but Moses still isn't content. He says, God, I want to see your face. And God just says to Moses, Moses, you can't see my face and live, but but God essentially then says, But Moses, I really want you to know me. And so God passes by Moses and, and, and says this about Himself: The Lord, the Lord, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and all sin. And God's saying, you want to see my face? You want to know who I really am? This is who I am, Moses. And this whole thing is a chiasm, where on, on both sides of it, God is making statements about himself. And as you move into the center, into the very center is, is this word faithful. Moses, I will be faithful to you. And then on both sides of that faithfulness is the word said." I'm abounding in Hasad, and I will keep Hasad to you for a thousand generations. God saying to Moses, "This is my heart." In fact, if you remember the whole golden calf scenario, where, where God just uh, has taken Israel to be His bride, I mean, they're not even on the honeymoon, and they're they're already playing the whore with with with, a, with another god so god says to moses moses please let me leave this people but here's the deal god can't leave them and the reason he can't leave them is because of his character because this heart that's full of has said he's bound to them at all costs which is why every time Israel sins, Moses makes his appeal to this character quality of God. God, according to your to your, chesed, your unending, undeserved, unconditional grace and love. And we learned a couple of weeks ago when David finally is convicted of all his great sin. In Psalm 51, this is where David goes. This is where he makes his appeal. God, according to your chesed, the only appeal I have in this situation is to appeal to your character, to your heart, a heart that is bound to my heart, irrespective of who I am. You can't let me go, God. I'm going to tell you what this means for me personally. Because I have done things that are gross, like David. And I too can make such a mess out of my life. But this tells me that God will love me no matter what. He's going to love me. He's bound to me. Do you know this, God? Do you, do, you, do you know this about God? And so when David now is, is, is saying, I want to show that, he's not saying, hey, I just want to uh, have this one act of kindness that, that I want to do for someone. It's like, he's not just saying, you know, I want to bake some cookies for, for, for my neighbor down the street. What he's saying here is, is I wanna show this unmerited, unending love and grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. And who has David set his sights on? Look at verse one. Is there anyone in the house of Saul? And if you know the story, the house of Saul and the house of David have become bitter enemies. This all started when David was chosen to be the next king, and, and, and we, we, we learn the rest of that story. The house of Saul was against David. They wanted to kill him. You get to 2 Samuel 3, and 2 Samuel 3 begins this way. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time, But David now grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. David now has his chance to take revenge. And and something that we need to know in, in the ancient world, that when one family dynasty is replaced with another family dynasty, they would literally then exterminate every family member Because even if there's a remaining third cousin who somehow uh, isn't put to death, that third cousin one day could become a threat. And so what I want us to see is not only that David wants to show Chesed, but he wants to do it outside his house, outside his tribe, someone from the tribe of Benjamin. But even more than that, he wants to show Chesed to even his worst enemy and now we're stepping into the thing that so defines the heart of god and differentiates god's people from the rest of the world jesus himself said it best he said you heard how it said Love your neighbor, love the people who are like you, but hate your enemy. Uh Uh-uh, not with me. I say to you, you love your enemy. You bless those who mistreat you. You pray for those who have hurt you. Now we're stepping into not only the thing that most differentiates the people of God from the rest of the world, but probably the hardest thing on the face of the earth to do. How do we do this? How does David do this? Where did David get like the, the resources to actually... Do this. And again, we're not talking about a one time act of kindness. We're talking about showing this unending, uh, undeserved love and grace to even his worst enemy. And it's something that David can do from his heart. And the reason he can do it, and the reason he can do it from his heart, is because of Jonathan. (laughs) He says it in the text. He says, for the sake of Jonathan. And Jonathan, if you remember, is Saul's firstborn son, which made Jonathan the prince. He's next in line to be the king. So when God rejects Saul as the king and anoints David in his place, Jonathan is really the one who is replaced by God. And by David. David. And so Jonathan is the one who has to deal with losing the throne to this young upstart. And so if anyone has a reason to show contempt to David, it's Jonathan. And yet as his very uh, father, uh, Saul, is seeking to kill David, Jonathan goes out and seeks to show David chesed, kindness, mercy. To to love David with his own life. To be bound to David as this faithful friend at all costs. In fact, there's this beautiful scene when Jonathan hands over his robe and his sword to David. These are things that would represent Jonathan's princely status. And when he gives these things over to David, he's telling David, I'm giving up the throne to you. For the sake of our friendship. And then after that, they swear said to each other. It, it's this love that's gonna bind them together forever. All because Jonathan sought to show Hesed to his worst enemy. I want us to hear something this morning loving our enemies is not an option for a Christ follower. We don't get to be like other religions. We don't get to be like the rest of the world where we just love people who are like us. Because our calling is to become like God, to have these hearts that are full of Hasid, lives that are full of Hasid. Because not only is, is this the way we're going to show the heart of God to the world, but Hesed is central to how God is redeeming and healing the world. It's why Jesus made loving our enemies and blessing those who persecute us and and praying for those who hurt us so central to his whole mission. Jesus is calling his people to do this and to be this, even under Romans, who are so violently um, aggressive towards them. I love how Jesus can just... In one picture, teach the riches of who God is. He says, "Look at the rain," and you understand the rain in that world is is called Maim Kaim, living water. It's 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 such a precious resource to them. And Jesus says, "Look at the rain. God causes it to rain on both the just and the unjust. God doesn't differentiate." And Jesus says things like, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. In fact, if we could hear that in the Hebrew that Jesus spoke it, he's saying, show has said as your heavenly Father shows has said. In fact, David Flusser, one of the greatest scholars on Jesus in terms of understanding Jesus in his first century Jewish context, says that Jesus, when he says, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful, that is parallel to when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. For us to be perfect like our father means we are going to show hesed, like our father in heaven. Like this is why when an expert in the Torah asks Jesus, okay, I get it, uh, loving my neighbor is, is the greatest commandment, but, but then who, Jesus, is my neighbor? And Jesus looks at him and, and tells a story and then says, your neighbor is even the Samaritan who is your worst enemy. Go and show has said to him. Who's your worst enemy right now? Love them. Joe has said to them. Which isn't just baking them cookies. It's showing this unending, unconditional, unfailing, undeserved love and grace. I love how David says this for, for, for Jonathan's sake. I mean, the chesed that Jonathan showed David is a huge reason why David is able to love the house of Saul. And, and now in our story, we see how all of this comes full circle. Because in verse 3, David says... Is there anybody in the house of Saul? And they answer in verse three. They said, Yes, there's one person remaining from Saul's house. He happens to be a son of Jonathan, but he's a cripple. His name is Mephibosheth. Now, here's what we know from other texts in the Bible about Mephibosheth. Yes, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. So he's also the grandson of Saul. He then grew up in a palace as a prince. But we also know from another text that when he was five years old, Mephibosheth lost everything. Because on one tragic day, not only did his dad Jonathan die and his grandpa Saul die, but the nurse in her haste to leave the home dropped him to the ground and he became a cripple. And as this orphan then, he goes into hiding from the new king to a place called Lodabar. And if you want to know what Lodabar means, Lodabar means a wasteland, a barren wasteland. In fact, if you want to know what Mephibosheth means, because I think Mephibosheth on this day when he's five years old and this tragedy happens to him, he changes his name to Mephibosheth. means Shame. So here you have shame, living in a barren wasteland. And now it's decades later. Maybe he's in his 20s now. He gets a knock on his door. The king wants to see you. He can't run, he can't hide, he's lame. He's carried into David's presence. Our text today says he bows before the king. In Hebrew, the word for bow means he literally flailed himself to the ground. He's lame. David says, Mephibosheth? I promise you, in that one moment, Mephibosheth is thinking to himself, I'm a dead man. But David then says, do not be afraid because I will surely show you said kindness for the sake of your dad, Jonathan. I will restore your life. I'm going to give you back everything you lost. And even more than that, you're going to sit at my table. That is a phrase that means in that world, you will be my son. In that one moment where where, where Mephibosheth thinks he's going to lose everything, he gets his whole life back. No longer is he an orphan living in wasteland. Uh, He is a son to the king. Have you experienced this in your life? It is easy for me to say the experience of Hased when someone offers grace and mercy at a time when I deserved just the opposite is the thing that most changes my heart. Hasset is the thing that, that, that changes a heart. It changes a life, it changes a marriage it changes a family, it changes a church, it changes a neighborhood, it changes a city, it changes a country, it changes the world. In fact, I want you to see the effect that, that, that David, David's grace has on Mephibosheth Now let's fast forward another couple of decades from this time where he flails himself before his feet and goes from orphan to son to the king. Now he's probably in his 40s. And this is just after Absalom's rebellion against David drove David out of Jerusalem. Mephibosheth desperately wanted to go with his king David. But one of his his administrators, Ziba who's placed in charge of Mephibosheth. He deserts him. He leaves him behind for Absalom. In fact, Ziba lies to David and says, Mephibosheth actually conspired with Absalom because Ziba wants the estate. So when David finally puts this fire out and returns to Jerusalem, David now is to confront those who aren't loyal to him. And one of these guys is Mephibosheth. And in 2 Samuel 29, it speaks of this confrontation. It starts in verse 24. Love to hear those pages turning like that. Love it. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. I love this. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely he is in mourning and when he came from jerusalem to meet the king the king asked him why did you not go with me mephibosheth and mephibosheth said my lord the king ziba my servant betrayed me and has slandered me to to the lord my king and then Mephibosheth says this, My Lord, the king, is like an angel of God. Do whatever you wish to be now, even if that means you need to put me to death. All my father's house deserved nothing but death from my Lord, the king. But you made your servant a son at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? What right do I have to do so? And the king said to him, why say any more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. And listen to Mephibosheth's response. Mephibosheth said to David, let Ziba take everything now that my lord the king has returned home safely. <laughs> he loves David In fact, in that one last statement, we see that the one treasure in Mephibosheth's life is the king. He passionately loves the king, he loves David with his heart, soul, and life. And here's my question for you this morning it's about the only question I have Do you love the king? Because I think you can tell now from this story h- how David is pointing us to the one true king, Jesus. How this, how this one story beautiful, beautifully tells the whole story of the Bible. Because I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think of yourself t- today. Left to our own, all of us, are Mephibosheth. We've all lost our princely status. We've all been orphaned to low debar. We all know shame and still worth. We all know, no we don't all know, but we should all know that we are all incapable of fixing our broken life, of repairing it and restoring it. And as Mephibosheth says before the king, I love this, he says, Who am I but a dead dog in, in the end, left to ourselves? We are nothing more before our king than dead dogs. But that's the beautiful story of the Bible, because the story of the Bible is the story of a prince who, like Jonathan, Gave up everything, even his throne in heaven, to come and find us, to come and to show us the kindness, the hased of God, and to, to, to show it at a, at a point where it would cost him everything so that he could restore us and, and bring us home where we're no longer orphaned, but we're sons and daughters at his table. In his palace, in the king's family. Jesus did this for us. He did this for dead dogs who deserve death. He came and he died to reconcile us to God, to restore us to. To the Father, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ came and gave up his life to reconcile us to him. Do you love him? Can your heart, like Mephibosheth, say today, All I care about is my Lord, the King. See, for our hearts to say this, not our mouths, not our mouths, not even just our brains, but for our hearts to say this, two massive realities must flood our soul. The first is we must know how unworthy we are. I love this. When, when Mephibosheth is brought before the king, he all he can say is, Who am I but a dead dog before you? He stands before the king, unworthy. He doesn't feel entitled. He doesn't have this exalted view of himself that causes him to think, yeah, you know what? Life really owes me a lot more than low to bar. Life owes me a lot more than having my grandpa and my dad killed in battle. Life owes me a lot more than to take on this name, Mephibosheth. We become so entitled, and, and, and this just spills over in our relationship with God. It, it, it's disgusting to my own soul how I think sometimes, how much I'm owed. Sometimes I've got to preach Derek Tagess to my heart. In the words of Derek Tages, you aren't owed anything. And if you want to know what kills this passionate love for the king, it's this sense that we deserve something, that we deserve a better life, that we deserve a good job, that we deserve a better marriage, that we deserve to not get cancer. This is the kind of stuff that makes us all into spiritual weaklings and kills our passion for the living God. In fact, one of the great dangers of being spiritual or being religious is it causes us to slip into uh, having this exalted view, or, view of ourselves. When we forget how unworthy we are, we start to just think, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I'm good. I pray. I do all this stuff for God. And that just makes me mindful of of that story. When Jesus is having this meal with this Pharisee and and this whore comes in and interrupts the whole meal and starts washing Jesus' feet and kissing Jesus' feet with her her tears. And this Pharisee, in his exalted view of himself, he he had disdain for this woman. And he looked down on this woman and he called her, Sinner! And yet Jesus just smokes him. You know the story. It's like I come into your house, Simon. He actually has a name. You didn't love me. Look at her. She can't stop loving me. And and, and the reason she can't stop loving Jesus is because she has a profound, found sense of her unworthiness in fact here's the whole irony of that story the proud pharisee at the table never realized he was a dog under the table and the dog under the table is exalted to the table as a daughter to the king will never love like this woman will never love the king like Mephibosheth if we first don't realize how unworthy we are. Even David, for David to show such kindness to Mephibosheth, you need to know he was first Mephibosheth. He too was a dead dog in need of grace. And see, when we know our unworthiness, and then in that unworthiness... Come to know the depth and the breadth of the love of the King. Our hearts can do nothing other than love passionately with tears and kisses. Do you know this love? Have you personally experienced the Lord's kindness? Do you know the chesed of the Lord? There is nothing like the feeling of feeling like Mephibosheth, where our life is in low Debar wasteland. And we know that we are nothing more than a dead dog before the king. And then in that moment, to experience and to know the love of the king, a love that is forever, that is undeserved, unmerited grace, mercy, and a love that will never let us go. It never let you go, did it? As you lived under the bridge, it never let you go. In Jesus' last recorded prayer, he says, Father, love them just as you love me. That is the king's heart for us. He doesn't want us to be orphaned. He doesn't want us to be outside his love. Our father loves us as much as he loves his very own son. Think about that. How much the father, Jesus, the father loves Jesus. Is how much he loves you. And see when, when, when we know this love. We live life. Loved. And what's crazy to me is many of us talk, talk a lot about knowing the love of God. We, we, we sing about the love of God, but we don't live life as if we're loved. Because we're still trying to prove ourselves. We're, we're still trying to show ourselves to be worthy. We, we still feel this need to avenge our hurts. See, when you know the love of God, which is in Christ, you are approved in every single way. Not because you're so good, but because he's so good. And the king of the universe loves you. And when you know this love, you're going to love others with this potent love. And I love this. Jesus gave us a meal. He gave us a meal to tell us because of my life for you and what I have done for you, you get to come into my family and sit at my father's table, not as dogs under the table, but as sons and daughters. And he said, This is my body. Broken for you. And he said, This is my blood shed for you. It's something we remember. But even more than remember, it's, it, it's real food. It's, it's the love of God that's in Christ. And nothing can separate you from this love. And so this morning, The table is set. I'm going to ask the servers to come forward. I want people coming to this table like Mephibosheth, who know they are unworthy. God, I want to be like the woman... who in all of her unworthiness fell at your feet and she loved you with everything she had. God, would you convict the Pharisee that's in us and any exalted view that we have of ourselves. This morning, God, may we get low as we approach your table And as we eat, may this be real food to our souls. We are eating the love of God as in Jesus Christ. A love that is forever undeserved, unmerited, unfailing, unconditional. Thank you, God, for being who you are. Your heart is said for unworthy people like us. So, in these moments, let's just prepare our hearts.